leading us last week and teaching us. That was awesome. I want you to know that uh, one of the great pleasures of being here in Arcadia is working with these two young pastoral residents, uh, Sean and then Josh, uh, who I mentioned earlier. And by the way, those of you who are wondering, you will be hearing from Josh in the uh, next few weeks sometime. Um, we haven't assigned him the passage yet. We thought we'd do that on a Saturday night, just test him a little bit, but uh, we'll be hearing from him too. So uh, we are continuing in First Peter today. We are actually going to start towards the end of, of chapter one, but actually we're going to start in chapter one. I want to do a little bit of uh, a review. So if you could grab your Bibles and turn to First Peter chapter one, uh, and then we're going to get into the passage, which is First Peter chapter one, 22 through 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, which is the, th- uh, the three verses that Jeff just read. Uh, if you've been with us during this series, you know that uh, very important, uh, four of the major themes in 1 Peter is the idea that as a result of the gospel, if you are in Christ, uh, Christians have a reason to hope. We understand that there is purpose in our suffering. We also understand that God has given us a faithfulness that uh, results in Uh, being steadfast and living a righteous life and being holy, uh, one of the things that Sean talked about uh, last week, and that we have also been born into this marvelous eternal uh, inheritance. And now today what I need to do is actually add a couple of layers to this understanding uh, because we're starting to unpack more and more of this letter. The thing that we're really going to begin to see, I hope that we see today, is the, is the narrative argument that Peter is working through during this entire letter. We're going to be able to start to really connect some dots and see that uh, these are not just separate little sermons the way we've been handling them on Sunday morning, but in fact, uh, what's happening is he is building an argument about what the Christian community, the local faith community, a local church, is supposed to look like and how we are supposed to conduct ourselves. And in fact, uh, the scholars say today, this is, would be the second thing that we really need to understand is that Peter's language today is extraordinarily corporate. He is talking specifically about how we as Christians in the local church are supposed to conduct ourselves relative to each other. And so uh, he's transitioning from this idea of how wonderful salvation is into how we should conduct ourselves as a result of that and then what that means as we express ourselves in the local faith community. And this idea of the local faith community expressing itself is going to be prominent over the next several weeks. So just try and get that into your frame of of mind. So let's review a little bit where Peter has taken us and then we'll get into our passage today. So for instance, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" So he starts this letter off by saying, we want to bless God, we want to praise God, we want to thank God. Well, why would we want to do that? He answers the question. It's because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has made us, those of us who are in Christ, he has made us literally new creatures. We are new creations. We have taken off the old, we have shunned the old, we have left the old behind, and we are now in the process of becoming a new creation, growing up in Christ. So he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that's genuine through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope is the result of the resurrected Christ. It's a hope that's guaranteed. It's a hope that we can count on, unlike many of our other hopes in this world. And then he says in verse 4, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 
So we've been given an inheritance into the kingdom of God, not only here and now in this world, but also in, in the world to come, in the kingdom of God to come, in the, in the new Jerusalem. And this inheritance is eternal, and, and, it, and it's incorruptible, and it's uncorrupted, and, and, and it's also something that is sincere and pure. And then he says at the end of verse 7, it is kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is being kept Literally, that would be probably better translated as guarded in heaven. In other words, you have nothing to worry about. This is absolutely guaranteed. And so then he goes on to unpack that a little bit more. And then in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation. So he's still talking about the, the marvelous salvation that we have as a result of Jesus Christ. He talks about how the prophets were the ones who talked about this and preached it to us. And that it wasn't for their gain, but rather for our gain. And then he moves into what Sean talked about last week. He says, therefore, so he's told us all about this marvelous, this marvelous salvation. He's given us the doctrine and the reality of this salvation. And then he says, therefore. And it's interesting because all of the imperatives come after the therefore. This has happened in your life by God's grace and mercy in your life. Therefore, here come the imperatives. Here come the commands. Here comes uh, the, the instruction on how we are to live and conduct ourselves as a result of this salvation. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Peter, along with Paul and many other in the New Testament, including Jesus, talk about the importance of the mind that we need to be wise, that we need to have our minds prepared, that, that we need to lean into God's word and understand that, that it's not just about a feeling, it's also about knowing. And then he says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Th this word holy as Sean talked about last week, it means that we're set apart, we're separated, and we are actually different as a result of the fact that we are in Christ and we are saved. Therefore, we are to conduct ourselves in a different way that's going to be observed by people as different. They're going to know us by our love for each other, uh, Jesus says to us. And, and uh, we are going to conduct ourselves this way as a result of the gospel. And then verse 17 really sets us up for this transition now of Peter going into corporate language for the message today and the message that, uh, messages that follow in the rest of the weeks. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. He reminds us in verse 17 that those of us who are Christians are literally in exile. We are living in this world in exile. Because we are actually, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven. And so once we become <clears throat> Christians and we've been recreated and we've been given eyes to see and we have the mind of Christ, we start to look around and we begin to realize that we don't quite fit in this world anymore. Uh, we, we are to be in the world and we are to be uh, expressing the gospel in the world, but we are no longer of this world. And so we feel a little bit like we're left outside in a way. We don't feel like we're at home. And that is true because we are citizens of heaven. We are exiles. And therefore, as exiles, we need our community. We need each other. 
We need this local expression of the faith community. In this particular context, we need redemption Arcadia. And so Peter goes on to start talking about what this means for us in chapter 1, verse 22. Look at how he says it in these next four verses, the closing verses of chapter 1. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes the Old Testament. This is Isaiah here that he's quoting. One of the things that we need to understand about this book of Peter is that the Old Testament is in the background shadowing virtually every verse of this, of this book. The, the wisdom and the prophecy and the messiahship of Jesus that is po- talked about in the, in, in the Old Testament is shadowing everything he does. Isaiah's in the shadow. Leviticus is in the shadow. The Psalms are in the shadow. And sometimes they come out of the shadow and he just quotes them directly. He's quoting from Isaiah here. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The, glass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So let's just jump right into this. He says now, having purified your souls by, obedi- by obedience to the truth. That truth that he's talking about is the living and abiding word of God that has, that has been uh, in, that has infected our souls, literally, our hearts, and has regenerated us into this new life. It is the gospel, the good news, but it is not just the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by that. He's talking about the whole, whole corpus of, of God's word here as truth. It, it is the gospel in the sense that the gospel at the moment that it saved you, that it took your heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh, a heart that uh, is for God rather than for the world. He's talking about that gospel But he's also talking about the gospel that also sanctifies. The gospel that gives us the power by the resurrected Christ and by the Holy Spirit living in us to start and complete this journey in our lives on earth here, uh, straining and stretching towards becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. So it's the gospel for salvation and it's the gospel for sanctification. But it's not only that, it's also the entire corpus of God's teaching. It's his word. It's everything that Jesus taught. It's everything that, that is God's truth. This is what has purified your souls through our obedience to the, the truth. Our souls are purified by this. And partly, but it's an important part, what this obedience to the truth, our assent to this truth of God has done, it, is, it, is, it has given us a right perspective or a new worldview. Sean mentioned this last week. He said, as Christians, we are to have a biblical worldview. We are to be able to look at the world through the, the grid of biblical truth. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't look at the world anymore from the perspective of your own self-centeredness or the values of the world or the worldly philosophies, but rather we are to have the mind in us that was also the same as Christ Jesus so that we have a new, fresh, redeemed, new creation grid through which to be able to look at the world and understand truth. 
And this truth brings us clarity and wholeness and integrity to our souls, which is in direct contradiction to the corruption and perversion that used to inhabit our souls as a result of sin and self-centeredness and that we still do from, uh, on occasion from time to time fight with. And then he says there's a clear purpose. Just follow his thread. Follow his argument. There is a clear purpose for this purity of soul. We are to have sincere brotherly love for each other from pure hearts. And we are to love each other earnestly. And what's interesting about this passage is that he uses two of the different Greek words for love. He uses philia, which is sort of described as that brotherly love, you know, Philadelphia. So he uses philia, which is affectionate love, but he also uses agape. So he's using both of them, and he's doing this very purposely. The agape love would be unconditional love. So he's calling us to love each other affectionately and unconditionally. This is a high calling, isn't it? Literally, what he's saying is that we can't we, sh- we should be in such a mindset that we can't help but love one another. And also, we're going to love each other no matter what. We can't help but love each other. And we're going to love each other no matter what. It's two different kinds of love manifested in two different ways. And it is a high calling. The challenge in this, though, is that this is exactly the way Jesus loved us. And the reason Jesus loved us this way, he loved us with an affectionate love where he couldn't help but love us because we are image bearers of God. And then he loved us unconditionally. He loved us no matter what because he knows we're sinners. He knows we're fallen. He knows we're flawed. And he knows that we can't do anything about it and that he's the only one who can do something about it and save us. But it doesn't stop there. Peter says that as a result of that, You and I are also supposed to, because we have the resurrected Christ and his spirit living in us, love each other the same way. We come to each other in the church and we recognize that you and I are both image bearers of God and therefore we have affectionate love for each other. We can't help but love each other. I know some of you are just grinding away right now going, it's not that easy, Pastor. I get that. But also we are to love each other no matter what because even though we're image bearers of God, We also recognize that we are all fallen. We are all sinners. And so we're to love each other in spite of that, that we are to love each other no matter what. It's a very, very high calling. This really changes our grids. But God has loved us and forgiven us first. And if we are to live into that, we must also, if we are to accept that love from God, we must also love and forgive others, especially within the context of the faith community, no matter what. And let me just remind you, this idea of love and loving each other is nothing new. It's all over Leviticus chapter 19. It's the cornerstone, the centerpiece of Leviticus 19. Obviously, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 22 when the guy comes up and says, what's the greatest commandment? And and Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others as well. So Jesus said it. Paul has it all over his letters, love one another. Nevertheless, here's a simple observation. If we look around at how we tend to love each other, we recognize that we do need this reminder all the time. That the reason we talk about it all the time is because we do fall short and we need to be reminded and we need to be built up and we need to be encouraged in this. Uh, The church father Jerome tells us in his writings that uh, the apostle John, late in his career, late in his life when he was 
uh, preaching and helping to pastor at the church in Ephesus. And he was old and infirmed, and they used to have to carry him in in order for him to be able to preach to the church at Ephesus. And he used to come in, and virtually every time he spoke to the church, he had essentially the same message for the church, and it was this. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Why would he do that? Because he knows that we need to be reminded about how important this is, and he also understands how Jesus has also loved us as well. And Peter says that this is supposed to be a sincere love coming from a pure soul. It is flawless, so we're just going to keep grinding on this. This sincere love, meaning this love is not done for the benefit of the one who is loving, but rather it's done for the benefit of the one who is being loved. Sincere isn't talking about how we manifest this love necessarily, but rather what our motivation is for this love. In other words, do we expect to benefit ourselves from this love, or are we loving selflessly in order to benefit the person who's being loved? And this is really hard, because like it or not, we really do treat our relationships as transactions or exchanges. I mean, people have researched this for years. They even have a a name for it. It's called social exchange theory. This is how we treat our relationships, even in the church. uh, We think we're treating our relationships as altruistic, other-oriented relationships, but we really aren't. We really struggle with this. This is why very often in romantic situations that have gone south, we will hear things like, I will never love like that again. Now, I understand the pain involved in that. I understand how hard that is when you've been hurt by a romantic love. And I don't want to discount that. I don't want to minimize that at all. But one of the motivations for saying something like that, it is at least in part because you were expecting something of a transaction from that romantic love, and that's why you're saying that. I didn't get out of this relationship what I deserved, what I should have, because of all the effort and love that I put into it, therefore I'm never going to enter a relationship like that again. So this supposedly altruistic, other-oriented love that you have for somebody else really isn't pure. It's not purely altruistic and other-oriented, at least partly you're doing this because you think you're going to benefit from this. And, and, and I understand that you want to benefit and you should benefit from it if they're loving in a completely other-oriented way. But sometimes we are called to simply do this without recognizing any benefit or any uh, return from that. And I would suggest to you, if you feel that way about a romantic encounter, you do need to love like that again because you're going to miss out on all the joy that that love can offer. And so be careful of looking at these loves as transactional. (sighs) Fifteen years ago, I was reading a an article by a guy that I really respect. And, and in the midst of this article, he made this point that I really wrestled and struggled with for a long, long time and then ultimately decided that, at least for me, it's probably true. And if it's for, if, for me, if it's true, I assume it's true for most of the human condition because I am one of those. And so I was reading along and he said, listen, at every point in every relationship, you and I are either ministering to or manipulating the person that we're in relationship with. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral time. Everything that we're doing is flowing out of a heart that's either ministering or manipulating. 
And boy, I really wrestled with that. And the reason I wrestled with that so much, I think, after six months of self-analysis, the reason I wrestled with that so much is because what it was doing was exposing the fact that I am a manipulator. That I do things for people because it looks really good and it looks like I'm ministering to them and I'm serving them, but really in the darkest recesses of my heart, I'm really kind of trying to manipulate them. I want them to think well of me. I want some return or some benefit as a result of that. Yes, there are times when I do it thoroughly altruistically and I, and I don't think of, of any benefit that I'm going to get back from it, but there are also times, I admit, when, when I'm doing it for manipulation. And here's the scariest part. It's really hard for me to know exactly which is which. And I look at Jeremiah 17.9 as evidence of that, which says the heart is wicked and deceptive above everything else. Who can understand it? My heart is wicked and deceptive above everything else. Who can understand it? Your heart is also deceptive. And so you may think you're doing things for ministry reasons, but in fact you're doing them for manipulations reasons. And, and, and we are called to something higher than that. Peter calls us to something higher than that. In fact, he uses this word earnestly. He says you are to love each other earnestly. Literally, that word earnestly means that we are to stretch and strain and work and sweat. And some people look at love and they say, gee, if you really love somebody, you're never really going to have to work at it. That's just simply not true. Work, uh, love is hard work. And if you, you know that when you're in, the, in a relationship with somebody who is made in God's image but is also fallen and sinful, you know that you have to work at that, especially if you're going to love them affectionately and unconditionally. You're going to have to stretch and strain and work up a little bit of a sweat if you're going to love. And I understand that uh, affectionately and unconditionally love, loving others is often a stretch and hard work. But imagine if Jesus refused to stretch in his love for us. That was the ultimate stretch. When he went to the cross for us, for his love for us. Scripture never asks us to do more than what God has already done for us. And so we are to love earnestly. We are to make this a priority. We are to stretch and strain and, and work up a sweat when we love each other in the body of Christ. And we do it from a pure heart that has been born again and made right by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it for the reason not of our own gain, but for the gain of those who are who we are loving. And this love is so deep and profound that Jesus even said in John chapter 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. They will see this love. Sometimes people will come to me as a pastor and they'll ask this question and it's tough for them to come but they're really struggling with it and they'll ask this question. Just, just Frank, just how far, I'm really struggling with this person in the church. Just how far do I have to go to love him? What's the limit? What's the cutoff? When have I completed my duty in loving this person? Peter would say to you, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the, how do I get out of this question, instead of the, how do I actually go deeper question. Peter is calling us to go deeper with our love. So keep going in your love. Pretend that you're training for a love marathon, not a love sprint. Peter says that we love this way because we have been born again of imperishable seed. Uh, Peter uses the vernacular of imperishable seed when describing the word of God. And that word seed literally means beginning, origin, or genesis. 
And the genesis of our faith is believing the truth of the gospel claim that Jesus is Lord. And he tells us that this word of God is, is eternal. It's longer lasting than flesh. Again, I say he quotes Isaiah 40. Here's what Isaiah 40 says. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of, the word of God is eternal. And Peter has a very high view of the word of God, as he should have, and as all of us should have as well. In fact, in verse 25, he calls it the good news that was preached to you. And because the word of God is eternal, understand that the word will never stop. The word will always work in our lives. And therefore, if that word that has purified our souls by our obedience to, by our obedience to it, if that word has purified our souls is eternal, that means that our love is never going to stop either. That we don't ask questions like, how far do I have to go? But rather, how, much, how, how do I get to go deeper in my love? Um, I want to talk a little bit about the connection between loving others and the idea of obeying. In, in the passage last week, Peter specifically calls us to obedience to Christ, to God. And then here he talks about our obedience to the truth. That word obedience is not a very popular word in our culture today. I know that. It's one of those kind of banned words in certain public spheres and areas. You know, we don't, we don't like to hear it. But it's really an interesting word, especially in the Greek. It's actually a conflation of two Greek words. It's, it's hupakeo. It's hupakeo. Hoop meaning literally line up under. And akeo, which is to listen to. It's where we get our, word, uh, our English word acoustic from. It's literally listen to. So literally, the Greek word for obey or for obedience is to listen under. It's to hear the teaching, read the truth of God, and submit yourself to it. You are listening under it. You recognize that it has authority in your life, and therefore you can't pick and choose the stuff that you like and the stuff you don't like and discard that, but rather you are listening under it, and you're going to live by it. Uh, in the preaching collective a couple weeks ago where all the pastors from Redemption gather and talk about these passages, Luke Simmons, who is the teaching pastor at, at uh, uh, the Gateway Campus in, in Queen Creek, uh, he made this interesting observation. I'd never thought about this before. He said, I always thought it would be really nice to live on a deserted island alone because I, I am pretty sure that if I lived alone on a deserted island, I would never commit a sin. I would never sin. And, and, and he said, I would like to be able to live sin-free. And, and, and I thought of it, it's like, yeah, Tom Hanks. How many sins did he commit in that movie, Castaway? You know, I was kind of thinking about that. But then he followed it up and he said, but the problem with that is that I would, I would also, by living alone, make it impossible to obey God. Because there are no people there, I would never have to practice love with people that it's tough to practice love with. So I would give up. By giving up the sin, which is great, but I would also give up the opportunity to actually obey God. And understand that our call to holiness involves both of these things. I think sometimes, for instance, in verses 15 and 16, where Peter calls us to holiness, he says, be holy because he is holy. I think sometimes we, we tend to put that classification of holiness into this area. We say, well, we're just not going to sin. That's how you become holy. We just don't sin. But it's not just not sinning, it's also obeying the truth of God's word. It's also pursuing love. And so in order to be the obedient, holy people of God, it's not just that we're leaning away from sin, 
We haven't completed the task at that moment, but it's also leaning into pursuing love of others. And so Peter continues to discuss our contact, conduct towards each other in the church in these next three verses. And again, he just continues to uh, challenge us and confront us. So look at the first three verses of chapter 2 now. He says, so, that word so is just like the word therefore. It's indicating that there's continuity in his, in his argument, that there's a narrative flow in his argument. In other words, don't get caught up in the fact that there's a, a chapter division there. We kind of look at that and go, oh, chapter 2, he's going to talk about something else. No, he's not. He's just continuing his argument from the verses before. And so he says, so, therefore, and he has more indicatives, more commands for us as the people of God. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's continuity here, and specifically, again, he's talking to the faith community. He's talking about us in our salvation and our sanctification, living with each other, purging sin, but also pursuing love with each other from a foundation of purity. And as a result of that, he says, now you need to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That verb translated as put away literally means to take off and cast away with indignation. Often, it's talking about how we might take off or discard a garment that we no longer have any use for, that we believe has become kind of disgusting and we don't want anymore. So it, it, it's not like you, you walk into your bedroom and kind of take off your shirt and then drop it on the closet floor hoping somebody else might pick it up and put it in the hamper. It's not like that. It's like you, you, walk, out, you walk outside and you rip your shirt off and you cast it into the street. You don't want anything to do with this, with this article of clothing anymore. Uh, in the early, early, early church, the first couple of centuries, one of the practices that they had in some of the communities is when they had new converts, people who had come to Christ, and they would have a baptism ceremony or a baptism service, what they would do is they would go outside and, and they, would, they would have the pastor of the church go into the middle of a river and stand in the middle of a river and they would have the, the people who had just professed their, their faith in Christ line up on one bank of the river, one side of the river, and then, and then the rest of the church would line up on the other side, and it would be a, vig, a visual, an image of the fact that they were casting away their old life and, and now entering this new life. And literally what they would do is they would give each of these new converts a robe that they would walk up to the bank of the river in, then they would take off this robe, cast it away, Purely an image of the, they're just reinforcing this image, cast it away, and then they would walk into the river where they would get baptized by the pastor, and then they would walk out of the river on the other side of the other bank into the community. A beautiful visual of how this verb put away works. And then as I was reading this sinless and studying this, 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 just, this just hit me. There are a lot of sinless in the New Testament if you read through the New Testament. In fact, it seems like Paul is especially fond of sin lists in his letters, if you've ever read the letters of Paul. And as I'm looking at this sin list that Peter has here, it looks so much different than any of the sin lists that Paul might have. It seems as though Paul's sin lists are dominated by sexual sins and sins of idolatry, and of course, idolizing sex. All of those kinds of sin seem to be uh, dominant in Paul's. 
These, are, these sins are nothing like what Paul generally lists. They're very different. Why is that? Well, it's the context. Peter is talking in the context of the faith community, and these sins specifically destroy and corrupt community. They weaken trust. Matthew Henry, who's a Bible commentator dude, he said this about these sins. These sins both destroy charity and hinder the effectiveness of the Word of God. Consequently, they hinder and prevent our renewal and the community's sense of unity. And these sins are filled with intentionality. Ancient philosophers specifically listed these sins as the sins that were poison to our soul. And yet when we practice them, it's as though we're intentionally poisoning our souls. And as a result, when we practice these sins, especially in the context of the church, we are poisoning the church. We are poisoning the church and, the, and our faith community when we do that. This stuff gets into the water and it becomes a tide that is nearly impossible to stop. John Stott said this about these sins. These sins are often the result of people wanting to build their kingdom and not God's kingdom. And they will try to use the church as the vehicle to do that. So their agenda is all messed up in the church. Now let me describe these sins. I just, I just want to run through this for a couple minutes so you really understand what we're talking about here. And I think some things will become clear here. Malice, for instance is overgrown anger that motivates harm to another and troublemaking in gender. Now, I didn't go to hyperdictionary.com and look up the, the definition of that. I'm not talking about the 21st century definition of malice. I'm talking about the definition of, of Peter using this word in his context 2,000 years ago. Malice is overgrown anger that motivates harm to another and troublemaking in gender. In other words, if you think about that, it's overgrown anger what that means is that it's somebody who is upset about something, who's mad about something, who is harboring something against somebody else in the community, and they've kind of stuck that in their heart, and they've just let it fester and grow in there for a while. And then it, that root of bitterness and that root of resentment starts to overgrow, and it, and, and it gets bigger and bigger, and so it, it has nothing, it has no choice but to either leak out or explode out. And that overgrown anger is motivated by harming another and making trouble in, in general. The, the term deceit describes craftiness imposed on another's ignorance or weakness for the purpose of damaging the other and gaining something for one's self. That's deceit. It's literally taking advantage of somebody else so that you can gain something. And again, I want you to hear this now. Do you see the intentionality in these sins? These are not passive sins. These are sins that people in the church will engage in on purpose. Then he talks about hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy, and it's true, it's the whole ancient Greek theater thing. It's, it's, it's the person in, in, in a Greek theater, an ancient Greek theater play who is playing more than one character in the play. And so he has to wear a mask every time he plays a different character. That's hypocrisy. It's wearing a mask so that people will think you are different than who you really are. That you are something than who you really are. You're walking around with a mask on for the purpose of deceiving them into thinking better of you for some reason. And the word here, this is interesting, this word is actually plural. Literally, it's all kinds of different hypocrisies 
And if hypocrisy is something that is counterfeit, you start to think about all the different kinds of counterfeit behaviors that we might engage in. So counterfeit piety. We have this false sense of religiosity about ourselves so that people will get people to look up to us and think that we're really something special and we're just so godly, but it's counterfeit. You're wearing a, a mask or it's, it's counterfeit flattery. You walk around just passing out flattery like lollipops because you're hoping that people will like you as a result of that. Or maybe it's counterfeit friendship. You know, you, you behave like you're in friendship with somebody, but you're really doing it to gain something. And you can see how these things would hinder community by their corrupt nature. They are not pure and holy. They're the opposite of pure, holy, and sincere, which Peter has been talking about. Then there's envy. Envy is the opposite of being thankful when something good happens to someone else. You know, Paul says in Romans uh, 13, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And some commentators make a big deal out of this. The reason Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice first is because it's harder to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing than it is to weep with somebody who's had a bad time. It's harder for some of us to, to celebrate when something good happens to somebody else. That's envy. And it's not, it's not necessarily that if I'm envious of you, it's not necessarily that I want what you have. It's not jealousy. It's just that I don't want you to have what you have. I don't want it. I just don't want you to have it either. In other words, I don't want you to be happy. There's something, that, uh, there's, there's something really perverse about that that would make me joyful because you're not happy. Okay? But that's what envy is. And then slander is speaking ill of someone to someone else for the purpose of gain. Specific, it's not gossip. It's specifically because you're trying to maneuver and manipulate something in the community so that you'll gain something. Now, obviously, these sins are clear signs of a heart that is not pure, a soul that is not holy. But Peter offers us an alternative. He doesn't, he's just like Paul. He doesn't, he doesn't say, stop doing this. And, and, stop do, and, and that's it, just stop doing this. He doesn't say that. He gives us an alternative. He's already actually preceded this sin list with an alternative. Love, yourself, love each other, love your brothers and sisters with a sincere and earnest brotherly love. He's given us one before, but then he gives us one after. He says, instead, we are to, like newborn babes, we are to long for, desire, and crave this, the pure spiritual milk. And that pure spiritual milk would be the word of God. So he directs us back again at the beginning of this passage in verse 22. He talks about our obedience to the truth, obedience to the word of God. And he directs us back to that, that we should have, that we should have a, a longing and a desire for the word of God. It's the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. It's the truth of God and all of his truths. And I want you to think about this metaphor that Peter uses. Peter uses a lot of metaphors in this letter. I want you to think about this metaphor of milk that he uses. Consider for a minute, for an infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. It is needed for the infant to survive, especially in their context when Peter wrote. And, and the Greek pure, that, that word that we translate pure, literally means nothing has been added to this milk. Nothing extra that might corrupt, corrupt the milk. Literally, he's saying this milk is organic. So long for the pure, spiritual, organic milk that is the Word of God. The milk is nourishment. It is required nourishment. And we all need this nourishment, just like our bodies need nourishment. We don't think anything about nourishing 
our bodies, whether they're with good calories or empty calories, we're still constantly thinking about nourishing our bodies with calories. We also need spiritual calories. And we need pure spiritual calories. We need good, organic, spiritual calories. And Peter says that this nourishment is needed so that we can grow up into our salvation. What does that mean? It means what we've been talking about all along. This process of sanctification. This journey that we are on with Christ here in this world to look more like Him, to be more like Him, to love and experience Him more and more. I know that not everybody is going to identify with this. I realize that. But hang with me because I'm going to talk about this a little bit uh, uh, more in a minute. But some of you will know this, this feeling. Have you ever had that experience of sitting down to read your Bible with no notebooks, no study guides, no, no legal pads. You're just going to read it. You start to read it. And you kind of get washed away. And you get so deep into it that you look up and it's 60 or 90 minutes later. And the time just went by like that. And the word has been ministering to you. And, and, and you, you don't want to stop reading it. You want to just keep on reading it. And the reason is because you feel like you're being absorbed into something that's bigger and better than you by, by sucking on the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. And some people say this, and I, and I get what they're saying, and I think it's an important point. They say, don't get necessarily hung up on the milk. We know what the milk is, and it's important, but rather, what we really need to understand is that the key point that Peter is making here is all about the desire that we're supposed to have for this milk. He's really emphasizing the longing for and the desire for the milk. He says, you know, uses that taste and see that he is good language in there, which comes from Psalm 34. What Peter is saying is, is you need to experience God. You need to long for the experience of God. The metaphor of taste in Psalm 34 literally means to experience, live into, love, and enjoy God forever. And in fact, that should be our highest priority. Scripture would tell us that is the ultimate priority in life, is to know, love, experience, enjoy God forever and glorify Him as a result of that. And I want you to think about this. If that's not the ultimate purpose of life, to know, love, experience, and enjoy God forever and to glorify Him, if that's not the ultimate purpose, then frankly, you're right. None of this makes any sense. But it makes sense within the context of God's call on our life, which is that purpose, to know and love Him. Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord of good. That's an interesting little verse because a lot of people look at that and they say, oh, Peter's questioning their salvation. No, he's not. Most commentators would say this. Peter is not expressing doubt but rather he's affirming that they had tasted the goodness of God and hence he argues that they should have no trouble taking off the old and sucking down the new. Peter is saying you have tasted that God is good, you have experienced him, therefore you should be longing for the pure spiritual milk. And he quotes this Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in God. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And then here's the contrast. The young lions, the psalm says. What's a young lion in this context? A young lion specifically talks about somebody who has decided not to fear God, but rather trusts in themselves. The psalmist says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
And so we need to seek the Lord. We need to desire him and desire the pure spiritual milk of his word. So two things grow up out of this that I want to try to lead you through as we close. Here's the first one. We really do need to long for the pure spiritual milk. And I hear those of you right now who are thinking in your mind or murmuring under your breath or elbowing the person next to you and you're saying, I just don't know what that feels like. I've never felt that before. I know I'm a Christian. I know God has done a work in my life. But every time I look at the Bible, every time I try to read it, I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And I don't have this longing to get knee deep, to get washed away in this word. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, I don't want to impose my experience on you. Well, actually I do, because I'm going to impose my experience on you right now, because I went through that when I was saved. The first couple of years that I was saved, uh, I, I, I knew that God had done a work in my life. I knew that, and I knew I was saved, and I knew I was a part of this new faith community. But every time I went to the Bible, I just didn't get it, and it was hard. I, I, I just, it, it didn't connect. And so finally what I did was I started looking around the church that we were going to, and I identified a guy who was a couple of years older than me, but in Christ he was considerably older than me. And he was a guy who occasionally led Bible studies, so I knew, I knew he knew the Bible. And he was a guy who at Bible studies would speak up with authority and clarity and, and with good comments. And so I went over to him and I said, listen, I'm really struggling with this Word of God thing. And, and you seem to have uh, some knowledge about it. And you seem to like it and you seem to know what's going on with it. Uh, I would like to ask a favor of you. For the next year, would you meet with me one night a week, have dinner with me, and then study for an hour, just study scripture with me and help me to lean into it? And he said, man, I would love to do that. In fact, I've been waiting for somebody to come up to me and ask me to do that so I could help them and mentor them. There was a part of me that said, well, why are you waiting? Why didn't you go seek somebody out? Why are you just standing there? Okay, there was a part of me that said that, but I got over it really quick and I said, okay, let's start Thursday night. And so what we did for a whole year was we walked verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and it revolutionized everything for me. That desire started to come. I started to look forward to not the dinner, not the food, but rather the spiritual milk that we were going to engage in. And so if you're one of those persons who's walking around, male or female, it doesn't matter. If you're walking around here going, I don't get, I just, I don't know, I don't know. Here's what you need to do. You need to start looking around this community because I guarantee you in my seven and a half months here, I know there are people here that know the Bible really well and are looking for people to shepherd and maybe they're just not aggressive about it. You need to identify those people and have the courage, put on your big boy and big girl pants and have the courage to walk up to them and say, hey, would you start meeting with me once a week and let's pick something to study. And if you have to involve food to get them to do it, then involve food, please, by all means, whatever it takes. Okay? This is really important. We have a high value on this at redemption. And I'm not talking about going to an RC. This is different than a redemption community. This would be in addition to a redemption community. And maybe if you're looking for somebody like this, a redemption community would be the first place that you could start looking for somebody like this. But let me not just talk to those of you who are kind of new at this or having a lack of desire. Let me talk to the people who I think actually have a bigger responsibility in this. Those of you who are mature in, in the pure spiritual milk. Those of you that have grown up in Christ somewhat. Those of you that do have something to offer. If you're not meeting with somebody who is at a different spot, than you, a spot where you can help lead them and mentor them, 
What's wrong? Look for somebody to do that with. Don't wait for somebody to come up and ask you. You go and seek them. Ever since I had this experience with, this guy's name was Ed. Ever since I had this experience with Ed, that's what I've done. And I meet with guys all the time now. I, I have a full schedule of meeting with these guys now that, that we're working through Scripture together. And we are longing and desiring the pure spiritual milk of God together. Again, this is a high value for us. And that leads us into the second and last thing. I would suggest that you and I not only need to lean into the pure spiritual milk of, of the Word of God, but we also, on the other hand, we need to be careful of what else we're drinking. Watch what you drink. Watch what you drink spiritually. Um, I, I come from a faith community that uh, didn't have a high value on, on, on uh, uh, food nutrition necessarily, uh, into a community that seems to have a high value on that. I've been learning that, and I've even been reading my own books. We have a lot of people who are vegetarians and a lot of people who are vegans, and, and, and I've been learning and reading, and, and, and it's been interesting, and I've been trying to figure that out even in my own life. And the reason that we do that primarily, the reason we do it is because it's just healthy. It's healthier for us. It's better for us. If we're this concerned about what we're putting into our bodies, and we are, shouldn't we also be concerned about what we're putting into our minds, hearts, and souls? Shouldn't we have that same concern about that? We need to be really, really careful with that. Um, I'll just give you a couple of examples real quick. And I'm, I'm, this is, these are just observations. I'm not being too terribly critical. But I will tell you that I know a lot of Christians who would probably value what Oprah says over what the Word of God says. I think that's a problem. It's not that Oprah's this awful person, but she tends to be a little bit uncritical in her discernment of what is true and what is not. She's got such an huge open mind that she struggles with discernment and so i would be really careful of that on the other side of that aisle i would also say that there are people who seem to think that rush is the messiah not jesus some of us are uh, listening a little bit too much to talk radio and it's showing in our conduct because we're behaving like talk radio heads and it's hard I'm not saying that you should stop watching Oprah and stop listening to talk radio. I'm just saying be careful what you're drinking, man. The spiritual drink is the word of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says it like this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen, y'all, Peter wants us to treat the faith community. Peter wants us to treat Redemption Arcadia well, with purity, with sincerity, with holiness, with integrity, and with earnestness. And the reason is because the church is the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And so we should treat her as a bride, as a precious prized possession. Let's pray together. Troy and Sean will come and lead us into our time of response. God, these are, these are challenging words, but we know that by your resurrected Son, we can live into these. And so we just pray that we would be able to do that. 
Give us the courage and the power to be able to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.